Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Uh, so welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with Mike Spencer Bowne the author of The World's Most Traveled Man. Uh, welcome, Michael. So do you prefer Mike or Michael? Uh, Mike is good. Mike is good. So you yeah, have been, uh, you have been, I actually don't know anybody who's, even diplomats, I know diplomats, I know people, I don't know anybody who's traveled more than you uh, and actually really sort of got to know a country rather than just, I mean, the diplomats I know who've traveled everywhere they mostly like that woman that you talk about at the beginning of your book. They mostly know what the hotels and the airports in those places look like. You actually have eaten the food and hung out with the people and, and all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, like how do you explain. how do you describe yourself to people? I mean, just to tell our listeners who you are. Well, I've been backpacking nonstop now for thirty years. And that's pretty much all I do. So I, I go to a country and I, I sort of just look around the same way you would if it was sort of a hobby of yours to try to figure out what the culture was like or what's of interest there. And then I move on and do the next. And if I felt I didn't do enough for a country, I come back and do it again. So it's just how like, do you deal I'm with the language? How do you deal with the, the language barrier? I find that uh, a few hundred words of a language is usually enough. And oddly enough, the amount of people who've been learning English is just ridiculous. So they were vastly outstripping my ability to learn a few hundred words in whatever language I happen to encounter. Because your languages change every few weeks. And you, you try to learn enough to get by. But all the young people on earth and, and a lot of even the middle-aged people are, it seems like they're diligently studying English at a ridiculous rate. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You're the you're the second person to say that to me and not, not very long. There's uh, a friend of mine who's actually been on the podcast, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he speaks... Uh, he speaks like 10, 12 languages or something like that. He speaks a lot of languages. But he said that one of the things that that he used to really like about traveling, especially like on, uh, you know, book tours and for various things, is that there would be that that challenge of trying to like figure out the local language and to, you know, get around and stuff like that. And he said, but it's amazing how so rapidly, like really, really recently, like the last – you know, 10 years really, that now yeah. almost anywhere you go, there's 
um, there's plenty of people that speak what he calls Facebook English. So they speak like yeah, basic yeah. English enough to get by. And so he doesn't really have that challenge anymore. Then almost anywhere yeah, he I, goes. I try to learn it anyway because it's kind of fun to learn some words in whatever the local language is. But it's true, though. There's, it's just ridiculous the amount that people have learned English. It used to be 30 years ago that I would say there were four or five languages I would have considered co-equal at the top. But now it's like English is probably the top and then any other language is, is quite far below that now. Yeah, well, I have a friend of mine who lives in, um, he's probably listening to the podcast right now. Hi, Michael. Uh, he's uh, he's in China and he confessed to me recently that um, he basically, he, he's been living in China for a long time. He's married to a lovely woman there. He's got a son. He's he, he has like a full life there in every possible respect. He doesn't yeah. actually speak that much Mandarin. He Ooh. said he basically, <laughs> yeah. he said he speaks, um, you know, just the minimum to get by. And he said, yeah. you know, he said, you know, I would learn more. It's just everybody, you know, everybody I need to speak to speak, you know, speaks English pretty well, you know, or yeah. they'll speak another. And, and the crowds are so dense there too, that it's going to be at least like, let's say you're having trouble in a train station there'll be at least one helpful Chinese person who can speak like Facebook English, as you were saying. So yeah, I did, I did um, China trips four times and I never had trouble. Amazing. So, I mean, you must've, yeah, you've had, I know in your book, you detail, you know, all sorts of crazy adventures. I mean, is there a couple that you would sort of maybe tell our listeners as a, as an enticement? Well, okay. To, to people buy usually find the ones, see, I find them all equally interesting, but I find that people who are listening to me speak think that certain things are quite astonishing. Like, I did um, Iraq during the war. So during the Operation Iron Grip phase of the second Gulf War, I bribed my way across the border. And I hitchhiked around, um, not speaking, because then they recognized me as a foreigner. But I hitchhiked around and saw the various battles between the Americans and the Iraqis for control of the countryside. You watched them, and like a, like a spectator fun. watching like a July 4th yeah. Uh, fireworks. Yeah, like, you know, at one place I was in the hotel and there was a, like this uh, Egyptian waiter who kept bringing me wine to drink. And I was watching a, a street battle below, like a lot of rifles being shot, people trying to hide behind sandbags. Oh my and then God. once when I was trying to leave that same hotel, like the manager ran up and pushed against my chest and he wouldn't let me out. And so I just went and sat down on a sofa and there were explosions outside soon afterward. It turned out there was a major street battle occurring. So it's like the Iraqis were trying to keep their Canadian visitor alive. But it did get dangerous sometimes. Like, I got captured by Americans at one point, but I managed to talk my way out. Captured? And I, I bribed what do you mean? a like they... Peshmerga guy by, with $1 to show me the Nimrud ruins. Just quite fun. Those are those ruins that have been destroyed by ISIS now. But it used to be that half the ruins were in Nimrud, and half of them were stolen by the British. And it turns out quite lucky. I used to be a little bit angry at the British because they stole half the ruins of Nimrud, and they put it in the British Museum. But if you think about it now, since ISIS destroyed it, it's actually the stuff in the museum has now been preserved. Unbelievable. So what are some other yeah, stories then, that people are, are Yeah, and then I did by... Afghanistan as well, like ta through Taliban-controlled territory where there's like locals were telling me there's a 30% chance I'll get my head chopped off if I take certain roads. But I managed to go around by local transport. I usually try to do countries by hitchhiking. So I hitchhiked around Afghanistan. I did deep into the Congo jungle, which everyone said was impossible. And it turned out it was pretty tough, but I managed to get out there on a motorbike. And then I managed to go deep into the jungle and live with a bamboo pygmy tribe, hunting antelope with spears and nets. Wow, that's wild. I, I, I had a, my, uh, my friend Ken Heckman, he would, during like, after the Taliban took over Afghanistan, he went from Montreal, he was a reporter 
for the Montreal Mirror, and he he went over to to Pakistan, and he basically got himself like smuggled over the border into Afghanistan, and he started Neat. sort of doing reporting and stuff like that. But he got caught by the Taliban, oh. and he actually got yeah. tortured, and it became an international incident, and there were you know, various. Like if you look up like Kenneth Heckman, you know Montreal Mirror, it was a, a big international incident, and he was eventually, uh, he was eventually released, and you know it, it was it was a big deal. Yeah. But so how do you how did you avoid getting captured in a place like Afghanistan? Because they you know they're very much on the lookout for people that might be, you know CIA people or whatever like spies and stuff like yeah, that. yeah they can become quite suspicious. Like one of my friends often goes over there for weddings. And even that people are a little bit suspicious of him because he, he doesn't um, smoke weed and he doesn't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. So they, and he also doesn't like uh, prostitutes. Like he doesn't like to go with hookers. Mm-hmm. So they get very suspicious of them because, you know, like the upper class um, Afghan men are, are, you know, often quite a bit into that. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so they're always saying, you're CIA, you must be CIA. <laughs> so he wants me to go along next time. So I'll have, uh, you know, at least I can drink alcohol. So they'll have someone to uh, give him a bit of cover. <laughs> So how do you avoid getting into too much trouble in these places? Is it just, are you just well, ridiculously I use, I use lucky? A skill I learned, but, well, I use a skill I learned living alone in the wilderness because I used to go up and live for up to six months at a time, many times in the wilderness or in the jungle. And I, I learned a, a skill just from, a, from the way my mentality shifted by having no one to speak to and no human contact for all these months. I got, a, uh, I guess, an, like an extra skill of being able to look at someone's face and sort of read them. The thing is, like in any group, you're going to have some nasty people and some good people, some in between. And l- let's say you're trying to, you, uh, you know, rent a motorcycle or, or rent a uh, motorcycle with a guide and he's going to drive you somewhere. Well, among the group of people who crowd around you all shouting that you should uh, rent from them, there'll probably be a couple who are actually bandits. But if you can tell from the facial expressions, then, then you're in good stead. So wow. I would use that constantly. So, yeah, I wouldn't pay attention so much to what someone is saying. You know, I kind of learned, it was kind of honed that skill as well in India because I was there for about a year and a half. And there, if you're, you know, if you're recognizably different than whatever ethnicity you're around, you'll get tons of these touts and scammers. So it's a really good training for, you know, not listening to what someone says because, you know, they're very oily and they're trying to butter you up. But uh, if you just watch their face and you you look for tells. Okay, this is, wow, I I have so many questions about this. Uh, First thing is... um, Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers, uh, What You Should Know About People You Don't Know, uh, one of the main arguments in this book, and he he backs it up you know, with so many different illustrations from everything from CIA interrogators to it's, – it's all over the place. But one of the points he makes is that humans are by nature terrible at detecting liars. So, okay, now he has a qualification of that. He says there's there's essentially two different kinds of people, right? And he doesn't say it's 50-50. Um, it's, you know, but there's two, there's kind, there's people that are very, very sort of demonstrative. So they're, they're basically, their inner feelings and their inner kind of motivations are pretty obvious like from their body language and their tone of voice. So this is the kind of person that fails a polygraph. This is the kind of kid yeah. where they took the cookie and you ask them and they won't make eye contact and they look down at the ground and their face turns bright red and they're they're blushing. And 
So there's people that are very yeah. obvious, uh, and they're they're very there's a, a huge kind of correspondence between their interstates and their outer kind of demonstration, right? So there's those yeah. people. Those people, it's very easy uh, to tell if you get attuned to it. It's easy to tell if they're lying or if they're, you know, trying to cheat you, you know, in India or whatever. Um, but there's other people who either are sociopaths and so they basically don't experience most of the moral emotions. So they can basically, they yeah. can tell you something and there's no, uh, there's no sort of external indication of that. Um, there's also people that are very, very good actors um, that are very like mm-hmm. fantastic actors, and so uh, if somebody is, or there's other people that are just basically on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum, and so they they don't know how to read other people's emotions, and they don't emote like like a typical person mm-hmm. either. And he said, for for any of those people, for the the sociopaths, the very good actors, or the people who are on the spectrum, he said, we are terrible at reading them and even people who are trained for years and years to be able to read people predictably fail to read those people. And he gives all these like very kind of striking examples of people who will insist that they're super good. My bullshit meter is like so super well-tuned and like, they're like, mm-hmm. I can read people and I've been trained to do this. And I mean, one example he gives in the second chapter of the book is the woman who was like really high up in the American intelligence apparatus, who was basically, they called her the queen of Cuba. She was running the Cuba file. Turns out she was a Cuban spy who was directly, yeah, who was directly like, Google it afterwards. It's insane. She was directly reporting to Fidel Castro and about everything mm-hmm. and people you know people who is their entire job is to know this stuff uh, just had no idea no idea yeah. right the and, and the same thing goes for throughout the cold war uh, there were infiltrators all the way at the top of the KGB all the way at the top of the CIA all the way at the top of MI6 at the and so his takeaway point is that uh Humans are by nature not very good at picking up on on lie detecting. So I find it fascinating what you're saying because, like, this is this is really interesting. So h- how do you think you've hacked this? Okay, well, one hack is that you can appear like you're almost an actor yourself. So you're pretending to be a bit more tired than you really are, and a lot less observant than you really are and far less intelligent. And then what you'll find is these psychopaths are a little bit lazy too. So they're actually running on what they think is the minimum to achieve their success. So they're actually, by not putting in much effort, because they think that you're easy to deceive, then it'll, they'll give away the fact that they're actually planning something that you, you, know, you might be able to determine from their facial expressions or you know, the way they put words. So they're not on their best game because they don't think they need to be. So if you if you give across if you appear to be someone who's hyper alert and very intelligent and you're paying attention to everything they say, then they'll be on their best game as well. It'll be quite tough. So you can in that way you can fool them. So you do like the Columbo thing, you know, where he he comes, yeah, you, you pretend he comes that you off really as mind. a bumbling kind of, idiot, mm-hmm. right? And 
Yeah, you don't have to go too far because then maybe you're not acting good enough. But just a little bit that way, and they'll think, oh, yeah, another typical tourist or foreigner. I should be able to fool them. Okay. Yeah, so you can have them not on their best game. But the other one is you really, if you do a lot of uh, bush time alone, you really do get the ability to read people's minds off their faces when you come, when you come out of the bush. Wow. So it's so interesting to be around people again, that there's some, there must be some subroutine or some part of the brain that's associated with dealing with others. And it just turns on with some kind of laser like intensity. Yeah, well, so maybe, you, maybe you, you can remember. Go, yeah. Maybe, maybe you can go into this in more, cause this is, you know, something that of course we've talked about online and I, I, I find just absolutely ever since you, you, you wrote that stuff, I've been kind of trying to wrap my head around it cause it's, it's such a big for me, it's uh, it it means sort of rearranging a lot of my intellectual furniture in my head. You know, I'm trying to like make sense of this because one of the things that that has always made sense to me, which you've you've challenged a lot, is that if you look in a prison, the worst punishment is solitary confinement. If you look at uh, you know like Johann Harry's new book, Lost Connections. He makes the argument, which I've heard from many other people, that a lot of what we call dementia in, el- in elderly people um, is actually just a function of isolation, that they, the yeah. isolation causes um, mental and, and, and psychological and emotional deterioration. It actually, like, uh, isolation has, has been shown in many studies to actually reduce IQ to, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. So I, I've been... You know, I'm 45 now, and I've been for for years and years. And I actually, I, I volunteered for for a group here in Montreal that sort of does uh, brings like meals and sort of help to elderly shut-ins and stuff like that. And I saw what prolonged isolation did to people, and it never yeah, looked. It what never you're seeing, looked though, you're good. seeing cabin fever. Yeah, it yeah, never you're looked seeing good. Cabin to fever. Me. Okay, cabin fever is different. Because okay. when you're in a cabin, like everything you look at is someone's, in a way, it's human thought. Because all those things that were shaped to make that cabin, they were, you can see that they, the human mind was behind it all. So in a way, you're like imprisoned in like dead human thoughts. But if you're out in the wilderness, you're in a living environment that's mostly fractal and very natural and calming to the brain. And it's constantly changing as you move through it. And there's all this information coming through. So you're not alone at all. You're with your animals. Like I used to even have pet wasps, pet deer. Like I had a deer that used to follow me around for months and um, she was actually waiting for me. She was waiting for me to, to piss on the ground because she wanted to eat the dirt to try to get some more sodium or whatever she was after. I guess there's some nutrient that if she could get it, she could eat some plants that she couldn't otherwise. So she would follow me around. I had like a pet wasp who was like my air force. So if I was lounging in a hammock, you know, up against like a ponderosa pine or something, this wasp would go all around. It was a very scary looking giant chartreuse colored and, and black uh, wasp. But it would just wait until there's some sort of bug trying to attack me, and then it would go and grab the thing and kill it, and then carry it off to wherever it, you know. I must have had a nest somewhere. But yeah, so I, I had Air Force defense and everything, pet deer, I even had a pet skunk, you know, all kind of things. Yeah, it was very social <laughs> up there with all the animals. I've I've only had that experience once, <laughs> yeah, and it was when I was a little kid, and I remember I was like like you know catching frogs at a frog pond, and I was suddenly just like beset upon by this like cloud of like deer flies and they were just brutal Ooh. and mosquitoes like all at once like a whole bunch of them and it was it was so bad that i actually was was thinking i was gonna just like leave and like 
And then suddenly these dragonflies came out of nowhere, like a whole bunch of them. And they just came in like like my Air Force. Oh, wow. And they started just grabbing oh, wow. all these deer flies out of the air and like going eating them on like reeds and one after another. And there were so many of them. They just like it was like, you know, the Star Wars system, you know, like that never was built. But, you know, the way Reagan does like they just came in and intercepted all of these uh, mosquitoes and deer flies. And then um, they like followed me around the the deer the the rest of the for the rest of the day mm. I was looking for frogs and salamanders and snakes and stuff like that. And they oh, just wow. followed they just they, followed yeah, me around and they were like anytime I was like the 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 worm on the hook, you know, like they were I was the lure <laughs> yeah, and sure. like I was attracting all this shit and they would just come and like, you know, eat it all when it came for me. So yeah, no, oh, I know wow. I know what you're talking about, but so yeah, that's an maybe, amazing experience. And when you're up in the bush, you get that quite often. Like maybe not necessarily every day, but you, you quite often get, get experiences like that. So maybe you yeah, can just, it's, it's just take, so, it's take so our you know, listeners because it's it's very profound. It, it sounds like just something you know. You talk about you know it makes me think of all these spiritual leaders, you know, Jesus and everything, going off for forty, well, well, maybe I'll 40 days the and for, of yeah, what please, please to do, mind. please do. Okay. Yeah. And, and this is confirmed by other people because I have friends who go off into jungles or mountainsides or, you know, all kind of places for a long time too. So it's, it's the same for everyone except for those who can't handle it. So a certain percentage of people go kind of crazy and they rush and they have to be around people again. But mm-hmm. then there's, there's some who can handle it. And it's kind of hard to predict sometimes who can and who can't. Like even this one hippie girl that I thought could handle it because she used to like grow her own goats and even butcher them and eat them and stuff. Even she went a little bit crazy and had to come back to civilization after a couple of weeks. But usually wow. if someone can go past a few weeks, usually they can make it. But the, um, the order of events is, so after 10 days alone, you get to like a little bit of time distortion. So you start to be kind of unclear. Like, have I been here eight days or is it 12? Like days start to mean less for you. And this is the most minor effect and the first one. But it just shows you that something's starting to happen. And then around 24 days, plus or minus a couple, you lose a habit that you don't even know that you have. And this is the habit of compressing your thoughts enough that you can conceptualize them and thereby speak about them and, and turn them into words. So around this 24-day period, you lose that ability, but also your thoughts become that much more powerful because now you're, you're thinking in a mode that can't be conceptualized, which means you lose the advantage of communication. So if somebody, suddenly someone appeared in front of you, you'd be kind of stumbling over your words. You couldn't really communicate with them very easily. But the thoughts that they had disturbed would be much more profound than they would have been if you were, had been formulating them in such a way that you could speak. So I think whatever, uh, whatever part of your brain you know, is in charge of that, when it ends up not being used long enough, it gets shut down, and your power of your thought increases dramatically. And then around, around 40 days, and it's interesting that it's this 40 days and 40 nights thing, so it's almost like biblical, you, you get uh, your sleeping and your waking become quite similar. So when you're sleeping, for instance, your daydreams are reality. So if you dream that a bear walked past, so a deer that it, a deer went along, you know, eating um, flowers, you know, whatever you might dream, in the morning your eye will notice the you know the missing line of flowers where the deer went or the the um, paw prints of the of the bear. So you're actually aware of everything that's happening around you in the forest, and it's even like part of the, part of the stories that are going on, like a hawk might be flying through or an owl might be hunting in a particular area making noise. You're all that's in your dreams, so it's like your dreams are are partially reality. But then in the daytime, as you go about whatever you need to do, like let's say in a particular day you need to go find a dry bush maple, 
cut it down, drag it back to the campsite and get it ready for use in cooking. And maybe you have to go fishing as well and get the fish that you're going to eat. Like whatever it is you have to do, you're not thinking or planning in a normal way. What you're doing is just having daydreams and you just do what your daydream is is doing. <laughs> so you're daydreaming that you're going to find this uh, bush maple. So you're going to the forest and your eyes are looking for it. And um, And you have a, let me think. Yeah, so then after uh, around 65 days in the bush, you're, even yourself shuts down. So if you don't really need a self if there's no others to talk with. So at that point, you just really merge with the bush, and you're, you're almost like one with your surroundings. Yeah, and you, you sort of have this opposition between the sort of the camp self and the bush, and the, the bush, bush existence and camp existence. And you say we're basically always in civilization. We're always in camp mode right yeah we're always in camp i noticed this with um uh, living with aborigines in australia and also with uh you know pygmies in uh, in the congo and a few other native tribes as well and even for myself that there's these two modes of existence you can switch between and for the camp it's where you're conceptualizing things you can speak because it's very powerful to be able to speak so even if you're giving up a little bit in terms of the the actual depth of your thoughts you're getting more power through the communication because you can then cooperate but uh, there's another mode where you're – and I, I hate to try to sneak up with some, like someone told me there's a guy with a rifle hiding in this forest over here, and he's been up there 70 days alone. Uh, I would be really loath to go and try to sneak up on him because I, I know what my sensory ability was. And like if a friend was coming to visit me, I would hear their, you know, their truck coming down a logging road. I could hear that dozens of kilometers away. And you know, every footstep as they tried to approach, you know, even if it was in the middle of night, I could just hear and understand everything. And you know when they say, like, as you're walking along, there's like a dozen animals notice you for every one you notice? Yeah. Well, when you're in this bush mode, you notice everything. So you might, like, see um, something's not quite right. So you're, you're, you know, you move your head, and it just instantly focuses into, a, you know, a, a black bear with a bit of a black ear with sticking out behind a black burned stump through, like, a, an, an area where a forest fire would swept through. So it's, like, black against black, and it might be 40 meters away through bush. And your eye immediately notices it. And you can almost see the recognition because you're, you're almost one with the minds of the animals around you. So you can see that it recognizes that you saw it, saw it. And that could happen in a tenth of a second. And you just keep striding along. So you're aware of all these animals. And I used to play games where I would try to sneak up on deer through the gaps in their consciousness. Because after a while, if you're very attentive to deer, you notice they have six modes of consciousness. And in two of them, you can move forward. So you just go downwind and you wait till they go into these modes where you can move forward. And you especially avoid the modes where they're either doing an ear swivel, eye swivel, mm -hmm. which is like a full-on scan. So they do – they alternate between – like they'll do a full-on scan and they have like an algorithm they're running. And it might go for a while before they'll do another full-on scan. But sometime between that, they'll do a false scan. So they'll appear as if they're browsing. But actually you can see that their, their mind has switched. So they're really attending to their ears and they're trying to move them a little bit. They're doing like a mini scan that's supposed to not be noticed and a mini eyeball swivel. But when you're very attentive to your surroundings, you catch all that and you just immediately freeze and you don't even move the pupils of your eyes when they're doing either this false scan or the main one. And then you can slowly creep forward. And I used to like to try to get close enough that I could reach and touch the deer. And then, of wow. course, it would just bolt because it's like, whoa, like from this point of view, a giant predatory animal teleported beside it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you see Unless like the, the nature, you see like the nature videos with the, the large predators, like, you know, the sort of the, the cougars or the lions or the tigers or the leopards, they get so close to these prey animals mm -hmm. and they just creep up on them, just creep up. And they're doing exactly, 
you know, something like you're describing where they're they're just going real slow, real slow, real slow, waiting for when they're not paying attention and just like moving, like maybe move just, to, you know, six feet, 10 feet. And they'll just do this for hours. And when they yeah, finally I mean, attack, they're often practically right next to the thing. Yeah, it's very clever. And if you think about it, we're also predatory hunters to a large degree. And we have larger brains than them. So we're actually better than them at, at it. But we don't practice at all. Yeah. And there's even some people who say that following footprints was how we developed our large brains. I mean, I, I know that you had a, an author you were speaking about who was saying it was um, because of socialization. Because you have a large social group. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not sure that that holds because they had some, for instance, they did some research with hyenas. And they found out the smarter hyenas were the ones that were more solitary. And it almost seems like the ones in the group kind of get a bit dumber and they sort of lean into the group. And if, if you look at the history of humanity, you find out that our brain cases were actually larger when we were Cro-Magnon. So it's almost like we had our largest brains then. And then as we became more social with larger groups, our brains have shrunk a little bit. <laughs> well, you can so specialize, could be like, right? I mean, the more you get with a group, the more you can specialize. And the more that you're, uh, you're in a, a smaller group, you know, this is the, the, sort of the idea that I was, I was sort of floating with uh, Nicholas Christakis that you know, I, I sort of see us as being kind of like social Swiss army knives that, um, mm. you know, we have, we have basically certain things that perhaps we're, we're better at than others, but the way we seem to have been designed is to be pretty good at a lot of things, like everybody yeah. being pretty good. And so we're not hyper specialized, like, you know, bees or ants or something like that. Like we, we're all supposed to be pretty good at a lot of things, but I think um, modernity and specifically kind of modern civilization, it gives us this very sort of elaborate division of labor, which mm-hmm. gives us all these great benefits. But one of the drawbacks is that individually, we might be really good at, you know, one or two things, but then be completely helpless on a bunch of other stuff. You know, it's like Joe yeah, Rogan. Especially Joe, if there's two Two, type, two ways of being human, like you have the way for being in the bush. Like I can see it's, it's powerful enough the way it sets in and gives so many special abilities that it seems to me like the, the flip side of what it is to be human. So you have the, the camp mode that includes all that communication and all that socialization. That's very important. But you also have the stuff where you're alone hunting or alone trying to find new territory. So why do you and, think, why do you think like, uh, I mean, I, you, you said that that movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, that, that it gets it wrong. Yeah, he, he did. I, I went it. to visit. I mean, so yeah. why does he get it wrong? Well, okay, at the end, I found it especially, I mean, I find a lot of movies a little bit annoying because they often get it wrong. And you, you probably do as well because you're well-read. You know, I, I read a lot of books too. or try to <laughs> try to pay attention to things. And in this case, they had when he came back from the island, the most fascinating thing for him was this uh, device that could create fire. So it was like one of those longer kind of lighters or maybe it was even just a lighter that he was flicking. And the fact is, what really draws your attention is a human face and human speech and being around a human again. And that's times a thousand in terms of interest, whereas something like a fire is just a, a very simple thing. And there's no way that would be the most interesting thing for him. <laughs> and also, he would, he would find that he could read minds when he came out of that. So there's enough information. Like Humans are shedding information everywhere. And if you're like laser focused on it, you're, you feel almost like a little bit sketchy. But you're, you have like deep insight into everyone's behavior. The same as if someone gave you a 3D recording that was down to the you know, thousandth of a second as for what kind of micro expressions and what exactly was said. And then gave you several hours to study it the way you would the piece of literature. You have that kind of insight 
in real time as to what everyone's doing. But it's exhausting and makes you feel sketchy because your mind is working overboard for this. And I almost like I was speculating that it might be a um, banishment subroutine because normally if you've been alone so long, there's a high danger that you've been banished. And uh, being banished or having to flee from a, a sort of a genocidal attack was quite common in human history. They used to be, you know, not <laughs> seethingly violent, but uh, more violent than we are today. And you had to mm-hmm. worry about your band being driven off by another band or maybe you you know, some other rival band blocked away back to where your tribe is and you had to go around so you're many weeks alone in the wilderness. Well, when you come back, the political situation could have changed. Because what a lot of people don't know is these little hunting bands, they have politics that are just as fierce as what you get in America or Canada. Sure, sure. So when you come back, it could have factions could have shifted and maybe you're on the out now. And I, I saw this with the pygmies where, um, what was it now? There's something very, very complicated going on in terms of... Uh, group dynamics and it really came to a head where um there was two nandu tribesmen who were forest rangers and they they had like uh, ak's and they were usually there to try to uh arrest elephant poachers and in fact eventually they got massacred by elephant poachers or most of them did a few years after i left but anyway at the time they were just among the pygmies doing some trading and they'd also been hired to protect me and this uh, slovak photographer who's taking photos of the pygmy life in the jungle and they got uh, quite drunk because some uh, alcohol traders came in, you know, marched in through the jungle. And these are like b- bigger uh, Bantu tribes. And so everyone got quite drunk, including these uh, Nandu tribesmen. And there was one pygmy. Oh, so, so one, one of this guy's named uh, Jacques. He was trying to grab this one pygmy and drag her off to sleep with her in the bushes. But, it, you know, I was probably going to give her an antelope or a machete or something in exchange. But she was kind of resisting a bit. I thought mm-hmm. it was kind of weird, so I, I was paying attention to the situation because it's kind of like rape, but maybe not really. And mm-hmm. It seemed to me almost like there was something else going on, so I was really paying close attention. And then, like her husband came by, and he got really enraged, and he started insulting this uh, Desiree guy and saying, "You're like a woman because you cook," because he was like a ranger who had to cook for his boss, the head ranger. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, Desiree got really enraged, and he. Um, what did he do now? Okay, so he, he went over and beat up the pygmy. So he's like pounding him in the face and blood is running from this pygmy. But then the pygmy's still insulting him. So then he's like drunkenly takes out his uh, assault rifle and he's saying, I'm going to kill the pygmies. I'm going to kill the pygmies. He's yelling this in French. So then uh, uh, me and my Slovak friend went and talked to uh, the uh, head ranger. And we said, you know, we hired you guys for protection against elephant poachers. And it uh, looks like now your uh, buddy there wants to kill the pygmies, which is, which is not cool. <laughs> he goes, okay, I'll take care of it, right? So he goes and takes away the guy's um, knife and his gun. But he's still quite aggressive, and he's trying to, to beat people up. But finally, he kind of drinks himself into a stupor. But now the one pygmy who was kind of insulted because his wife was being dragged away, he uh, goes around camp trying to get in fights with people. And some of the other pigs were saying, like, oh, when, we, when I go out hunting, you're trying to sleep with my wife. And here you're complaining that this guy's dragging away your wife. And it'd be like, boom, 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 lot, lots of fist fights. And at the end of it, the uh, pygmy husband, who was getting very drunk also and getting in all these fights, he got banished from the tribe. And the way things had gone, like the way I was following closely watching, I could see that it was a plan between his wife, who was the daughter of the chief, and the chief. Because we found out later that he was trying to make a power play to take over the tribe. So it was just interesting to see that it, among the uh, tribal people, you often like, <laughs> have like really intense politics and uh, sometimes even very intense violence going on. So you can imagine if you came out of the bush and you walked into this sort of scenario, 
you've got to really quickly be able to read everyone's faces and find out what's going on. Huh. And and so once you get into into the social life, then you can sort of turn off a lot of those sub programs and you can just sort of get into social life. Right? Yeah, you have to get back into camp life. But then you have the advantage of gossip, right? So then you don't need to be able to read people's faces so intensely. So you're overusing your brain when you're doing that. It's tiring you out. It's better if you just pay attention to gossip when you're in the camp and then you kind of know like, oh, okay, it's not, not surprising that the, you know, the, um, the daughter of the chief was concerned that her husband was sleeping around. So she was like – and also that this guy would try to take over from the, the, uh, the chiefdom and get rid of this older guy. And she wanted for her own political reasons to engineer a scenario by which there'd be a conflict and he would get banished. But you'd be – you'd kind of be in on that just from the gossip. Huh. Whereas if you came in from the bush, you'd have to be able to find that just off people's faces right away. So I think it's a subroutine for banishment, basically. That makes that makes a lot of sense, actually. In terms of the compressed thoughts, I was wondering what to, you know, I was sort of thinking about what you had said about that. And um, I, I've had the experience, well, I've had the experience uh, when you wake up from a really, really intense dream where you just mm-hmm. have experienced all these vivid, vivid things. And then, you know, it's like that wonderful Led Zeppelin song where it's like, and if you wake up with the sunrise and all your dreams are still as new, you know, like, and there's that, mm-hmm. that, there's that moment where like you're trying to remember your dreams and you can feel that all these really complicated insights and realizations are getting compressed and it almost feels the analogy that I've always reached for. Cause I've had this also like when you're coming down off of like a really intense, like mushroom trip or acid trip or something like that, where it, it almost, I always feel like it's sort of the analogy to, to math where you have, let's say a number that is like, you know, one point six, seven, eight, nine, one, three, four. And it just gets rounded mm-hmm. up to two. You know, yeah. it's just, and then you have like, you know, a number that is, you know, whatever, like, like, like 14 and it just gets rounded down to 10, right? Or it gets, and so mm-hmm. you, you take these like super, super precise concepts that are, that are very fine grained and very exact. And you, you can, comp- it seems to me like if I understand you correctly, that the process of con- compressing thoughts is, sort of squashing these complicated things into into like a word or a whole number. Is that is that roughly what you're talking about? Yeah, that is what it's like. So you almost feel like embarrassed when you start talking again because you know that every word you speak is more or less a lie. And yet you're not lying at all. Like people consider you're being perfectly honest. But the thing is, the thoughts you're trying to get across, you might be trying to get across maybe... 16 quite complicated thoughts that fit together in, in a, a way that you're very aware of in your mind because you're sort of deeply connected. But when yeah. you try to put them into words, it's just a bunch of bullshit because yeah. you're, you're, oh, here's the best fit here and the best fit there and the best fit there. But the words don't really fit over the thoughts. Yeah, I remember the, the first guy who taught me about, you know, you were saying your brother's writing this book on the fur trade right now. And uh, yeah. the, the first guy that taught me, really taught me the fur trade, like, and that whole period well. Uh, was this historian, wonderful, wonderful storyteller. Um, I took classes with him at Concordia when I was an undergrad. And I'll never forget this because it was just, it just like fucking blew my mind. I remember going up with him after one lecture 
And it was uh, me and like two other students in the class. And we were just, we were so into this guy's class. And we were like reading mm -hmm. extra stuff. And we went up to him and we said, you know, we've been like so psyched about this class. And so we've been reading more stuff. And we've found like a number of things that sort of contradict what you just said in this lecture. And he just looked at us and he gave us this kind of like wry smile and he said, the more you learn about any subject in history, the more you'll realize that everything I just said was bullshit. Yeah. And he yeah. said, he said, basically, you know, it, it, it's in a, in an introductory class, you give these overgeneralizations, which are like a best fit, you know, they're mm -hmm. a best fit for the facts that give people a nice, good framework to make sense of, you know, this period. But the more you learn about it, the more you're going to see all the ways in which that is, you know, smoothing off the rough edges and and ignoring this and ignoring that. And, and so you're going to just, you basically just, you're constantly going to be trading in one generalization for a better generalization and a better generalization but the truth yeah. is always going to be way more complicated than stories that we tell about things. Yeah, that's the importance of nuance. <laughs> so yeah. you can try to capture as much nuance as you can, but it's it's incredible amount of effort to uh, to try to capture anywhere near like, even half of it. But his point was that you this is and I, what I thought was very good is he said this is a basic nature of any body of thought of any body yeah. and that there's no escaping this like there's yeah, no that's true you know yeah. you you have to in order to talk about anything you have to generalize and you have to kind of and that's all there is like there's there's no way to get away from categorization and analogy yeah. and generalization yeah, you can try you try your best analogies, but then of course you'll have if you were trying to teach a class, you'd have students then trying to push that analogy to the breaking point. And of course all the analogies uh, break at some point. Yeah. So this is I mean getting to this experience, why do you think I mean obviously I'm just asking to speculate here, but like why do you think some people break and others don't when they have to spend a lot mm -hmm. of time by themselves? I'm almost wondering if they don't fully commit to the uh, to their time in the wilderness because I noticed like um, several of them have kept diaries, and I've read their diaries, and I can see what they they break usually between fourteen and twenty one days, and it's interesting to see that they kept being concentrated on what was at home, and then for some reason they fixated on the sky. So they'd be even like if they're going a bit crazy, they start like making little um, symbols that someone could see from the sky. So they would like, you know, put out, put a name or, or something that was important to them. They'd make in stones that someone from the sky could look down. So it's just a, a sign of uh, perhaps they're not in their place that they are. They imagine they're being watched or something or watched from the greater society. So I think they didn't fully commit to, um, to being alone. Huh. And I, I noticed this also with, uh, you know, I was once watching, a, it was a Scotsman of some sort and he was in Northern Canada. I think it was a BBC story and he was going to do a lot of time alone. And uh, oddly enough, he started to break in the same way that uh, my friends and I were used to. And we were calling out what he would do next. That was crazy. We're like, okay, now he's going to start crying in the next scene. And you can see he started to cry. <laughs> and that was like next day. And they said, now he's going to be like looking up at airplanes. And he was like looking up at airplanes. So he's thinking of getting out of there, right? So it's, it's the same way that they break. And since I, since I don't suffer from that, I, you know, I maybe you'd have to talk to one of them to find out exactly what it was that, uh, you know, that they couldn't handle. 
but I think they weren't fully committed to uh, to where they were and to being in the place that they were and accepting it. Yeah. Well, I've, I have a lot of students at the college where I teach who are from like way up north, like Baffin Island and, you know, like all like way up, like Inuit and Cree students and stuff like that. And they and quite a lot of them, especially, you know, the guys, they've gone on hunting trips by themselves for mm-hmm. long yeah. periods of time. And they talk yeah. to me about this as being just, you know, without exception, they've all described it the way you do as this really enjoyable, wonderful experience where you, you just, everything just gets really quiet and calm and you, you just have a great experience and you, you're out there and mm-hmm. you, you feel very much kind of connected to the, to the landscape and to everything around and they, they just think it's great. And I, and this one guy, one student was telling me, he said, you know, I actually, this was uh, between the fall semester and the winter semester, he had gone back uh, up north. And I think he was from Ujibugamu. And uh, and he decided the week before he came back to John Abbott College, he decided to just go like on a hunting trip by himself. And he said uh, it was insanely cold. <laughs> <laughs> for yeah. days and uh and i said oh so did you catch anything he's like no but it was so much fun <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he had like an amazing time but he didn't uh he said i got really close to a few things that i was hunting but i didn't i didn't actually get anything and yeah. uh i said well did you did you take a shot at anything he's like no i didn't have a clean shot of anything so <laughs> yeah i did it could still be so much fun yeah, it's great. But I'm not sure I could recommend it to anyone who is like a city person. Just go out and do it because it's actually quite dangerous for being alone. Because, you know, I've almost died a few times while doing it. Like I was attacked so, by a mountain lion once. What? Which is not fun. I had only a stick to defend myself. Yeah, that happened. Uh, okay, like, wh- 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 where did this happen? Well, this was in British Columbia. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was I was testing some night hiking. So sometimes I'd like to go hiking in pitch dark, like maybe just a bit of moon mm-hmm. you know, over extremely steep cliffs just for fun because you you know it, it puts your mind in a different place and you're aware of sort of different animals and things so i was up very high on the mountain doing that and finally i was coming down it was as steep as the as the steepest kind of ski hill but pitch black and there were parts of it that were just plain cliffs and as i was hiking down i came through a bit of a gully and i could hear that something had been startled by me and then i could hear that it had come around and it was following me so i took like a, a normal step and then suddenly i stopped with the next step and i was listening very intently because you can actually like move in your mind, like what you're paying attention to with your ears. So I was attending to what was behind me. And about 10 meters behind me, I could hear the animal take one foot step and then two and then also stop. And I thought, oh, no, it's that mountain lion. Because a bear will just keep blundering on. But a mountain lion will stalk you like that. So I even knew which mountain lion it was because it, it caused some trouble with me uh, a couple weeks before. Where it, uh, I had had to take a drink out of this stream. So I put down this backpack I had and I, well, I was... Uh, down on my stomach trying to drink some of the water it was a very small stream and it ran in and slashed my backpack and it's like primary claw cut right through like you know on the strap of the backpack they have like sure. double, two areas of double stitching yeah well it had cut the whole thing open like it could it could open up like a mouth you could you could play like a puppet with your uh, backpack uh, strap and there was other damage from the other claw so i knew it was it was this one that had been in the area but now here it was following me but i'm blind on the hillside and also, I was quite sick at the time with uh, Giardia, so kind of weak, but I was with blind what? on the hillside. 
uh, giardia. What's you get that, that from. Uh, you just get that out of the water sometimes. Like a long time ago, sometimes I wasn't as careful boiling water as maybe I should have been. Like be- so sometimes beaver pick fever, up, or yeah, it's the same thing as that. It's like a single-celled um, parasitic organism, and it just stays with you forever. Uh, well, I think you can get rid of it, but you need to take. There's various drugs you can take, but you have to like take it right away or it settles in. So it's almost like when I was traveling in Africa, for instance, I would always keep drugs on hand that were anti-Giardia. And I think there's a new one that's slightly better. I heard from someone, but there was like an old one that you'd uh, forget the name of it. But anyway, I'd keep it on hand just because if you can hammer it right away, you can get rid of it. But if not, it'll settle in and it might take two or three courses of it to get rid of it. Wow. So you might have it for months if you can't get rid of it right away. And some Africans I met you know, they hear me describing the symptoms and how I don't want to catch it. And they would say, oh, well, you're just describing what we're like all the time. And I go, yeah, your whole <laughs> life is lived with having Giardia. <laughs> so what are the symptoms yeah. of it? You feel kind of depressed, but it's slightly different. There's a different flavor of depression than you get from the falsoparum malaria, which is the lethal malaria. So slightly different depression. The, you don't get the same, like, pressure in your head. But you get, like, like, everything just seems kind of worthless and sort of meaning drains out of your life. And then you uh, can't keep food into a degree or get nutrients from it because the parasite is sucking the nutrients. So you lose weight uh, quite rapidly. There's once I almost starved to death from that where I was in for months and I couldn't shake this jardy I had. I had no medicine for it. And I think eventually I was down to like 145 pounds from like 180. Whoa. So I lost quite a bit of weight. And at one point I couldn't even move because I was too weak. So I just loaded a shotgun and laid it over my chest. And I laid on the side of the mountain because I was expecting a friend to come in like within a week. So I just lay on the mountainside watching sun come up, come down, moon come up, come down. And I was reading uh, Hunter S. Thompson's On the Campaign Trail 67 or some book like that. <laughs> but I was also like surrounded by all these bears and it, they were hoping I would die. So they'd be like circling me at night. But I still had my shotgun to level at them because they were thinking I was weak enough they could finally get me. But then eventually my friend came in with the food resupply. <laughs> and I, I went out to get some medicine. Yeah. But anyway, this, this, um, this mountain lion was um, – it was stalking me down the hillside. So now I have many kilometers to go in pitch darkness, and I realize that it's only 10 meters behind me. And if I so much as slip, it'll realize I'm blind and attack. So I had to walk like really confidently, but also I might step off a cliff. So I've never been minding my feet more in my entire life, you know, even the slightest you know, feeling that maybe this is a cliff in front of me. So I managed to sort of stomp down the hill. And what I would do to trick it into thinking that I could see was that if it ever made a mistake and say it stepped on a, a branch and it broke, then I would spin around and look exactly to where that sound was. So then it might think that I can see it. Mm-hmm. So I managed to hold it off until I, I, I actually missed my campsite, but I you know, saw this one clearing that had a weird tree that came up and it kind of turned like a U and then continued going up. And I could see a bit of the moonlight of that tree. So it sort of got me oriented enough that I could get to my campsite. And I thought, okay, now it's going to go away. But actually it came around and started circling the campsite. And all I had was a stick of hawthorn wood. And so I, I made a note for my girlfriend because in like three weeks she was going to hike up or might have been might have been two or three. Anyway, like fairly soon she was going to hike up. And if it had killed me and was like defending the carcass, I wanted her to know to get out of there right away because sometimes they'll defend the carcass, you know, just in the region. So mm-hmm. I had to nail a I had to nail a, a piece of uh, paper onto a pine tree saying, you know, if you can't find me, I've been killed by a mountain lion. Get out of here quickly. <laughs> and anyway, that that. That night, you know, I was trying to sleep, but it was nearly impossible because I had like a, I had a lot of pain in my stomach because I had some, I was drinking only mud water at the time because it was a terrible drought. And, uh, yeah, of course I had this mountain lion trying to come at me and it would just flatten its ears and come right at me. And I'd swing at it with the hawthorn stick and then it would move and try to get inside of my swing. So I had to check the swing and come again from another angle. 
And so it was annoying like me like this. So it was no sleep was possible. And, uh, oh my God. yeah. And luckily I had some emergency food because I, what I learned uh, quite early on after the first few years where I had a few problems was that you need a emergency stash of food just in case there's some kind of problem. Because with this going on, there's no way I could hunt or fish or snare birds or anything. Mm. So luckily I had like a stash of tins of beans and tuna and I started eating all tuna because I thought if it can smell that I'm eating tuna, it's not going to be doing this to me every night. And I don't know if it worked that way or maybe just got tired of being down the mountain where it prefers to be up. So why but would it, why would it, it stop left. if it could smell tuna? I was thinking maybe if it could see that I'm a, I'm a meat eater too, perhaps I wouldn't be worth attacking. Oh, okay. Wow. My, my cousin lives, uh, he and his wife live on Vancouver Island, which is apparently the, the highest concentration of mountain lions in the world is on Vancouver Island in, uh, in BC. And he has told me, I mean, he's, my, he's a big guy. Like his name's Michael too, actually. And, uh, he's, you know, probably like six, four, you know, big guy. And, um, he, talked about like because he's an avid bird watcher and he talked about mm -hmm. being in coming looking for some birds and stuff like that and then suddenly realizing as he's walking back to his truck that he's being stalked by a big male mountain lion oh, and no. you know and like and just he said it was absolutely terrifying and he kept like turning around and like screaming and yelling at it and like, ah, like, you know, trying to make a lot of noise and look really, really big. And, you know, usually this, yeah, this will I can work. sympathize. I was doing the same thing. <laughs> and it was just not working. It was just not mm. working with this guy. And so he finally, finally, finally got back to his truck and he was parked right next to a, uh, a bridge, like not a big bridge, like just a, over, you know, over like a, like a small river and uh, and he just got inside his truck and he slammed mm. the door and this like man like comes out wow and like it's like just totally pissed off and then it jumps mm. up on the the railing of the bridge and he got like these fantastic that he was posting on Facebook and stuff like that he got this like oh, on his nice. cell phone of this mountain lion walking away on the on the railing of the bridge and it's just this big mountain lion with these giant balls swinging back and forth like <laughs> yeah. as it walks away like on the on the railing of the bridge <laughs> oh that's great that's yeah great like these two softballs like just like back and forth and it's just like walking yeah. away you know like and just like totally pissed off and like thought for sure it's gonna get a good meal yeah, it's uh Yeah. But I find that they're pretty scary. They're 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 up there. I've actually been more scared though from I don't want to disparage this animal because they're a very nice animal, but um forest elephants. What? Like when you when you find those things and they you're disturbing their uh, family. Well, humans have been killing quite a lot of them and they remember and they're they're sort of angry. So there's been something like for instance in the jungles of Gabon, I was really really deep in the jungle and I saw a family of forest elephants. And you could see the, the male, uh, in this case of the group, I think it was the male, because it looked like there was a slightly smaller one that had a calf. But it looked like maybe it was its family. And it was really pissed off that I was there. And it was doing these false charges. Actually, bears will do that, too. You've probably had that happen to you, you know, living in Canada, where a bear does like a false charge, where it runs right at you, snapping its teeth. No, never you know, happened to me, ever. No. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I've, had that, I've had that happen like 20, 30 times. But what you do is you, you counter run at it, and you go to, sort of go and hold up your arms. And then it, then it usually backs off if it's a black bear. And if it's a grizzly, you hope for the best.
<laughs> no, the only thing I've had was I was I was up in the Muskoka Lakes region in in Ontario, and I was with uh, I was looking for fox snakes and Mississauga Mississauga rattlesnakes and a bunch of other stuff oh, yeah. with, with my friend Steve, and we <laughs> were like walking along this path, and suddenly Steve goes, uh, "Hey, is that a wow? Why does somebody have their dog out here?" And I looked up, and it was a. Uh, a black bear cub like really close to our path and oh, no, sure I'd enough like come over and play with you and sure enough like you know behind us is the mom yeah in the sight in the sight line like about sort of you know 30 30 meters like far like far back is the mom yeah and so she just looks up and i was like run <laughs> so we we ran to the boat which was right by we were like and we got inside our boat and like just took off. Because the only time I've heard of people getting in trouble with black bears is where you get between a mother and her cub. And yeah. we were between a mother and her cub. <laughs> so Yeah. Now, running can sometimes trigger their sort of running to attack thing. So it's actually better to back away relatively swiftly or, or swerve. But yeah, I can see why you're... you're thinking that running. <laughs> well, I was young and we were not far from the boat. So I yeah. knew that like there was no way she could possibly get to us faster than we could get to the boat. Excellent. Although I've, you know, I've another heard one, they can go fast though. They're very fast. Like, you know, I've seen them stop on a dime, even running down a mountain. They're, they're have extremely good pads for grip and they're amazingly fast. But one sign, if you've got a mother nearby, if you hear like, Oh, 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 but really loud. That's the mother's sign that she's sending her, her uh, cubs up the tree. So you see these little furry football things go zing, zing, zing up the tree. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's also a sign for you to swerve and not go there. <laughs> Have you seen the movie, uh, the like Werner Herzog movie, Grizzly Man? No, I haven't. Oh, you hmm. would absolutely adore it. It's this like total, uh, you know, delusional, hippie, dippy guy from California, I think. Who moves up to he's he's his life's a mess, he's kind of a screw up. He moves up to Alaska and he starts yeah. living among grizzly bears. And he films this like crazy. He becomes this big kind of activist where he's gonna like Oh, is he the and... guy that I think I might have heard of this guy? Is he the one that got eaten by the bears? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, guy. yeah, I heard of him. So yeah. so Werner Herzog got all of his film footage. And he basically went over all of it all the way to the end where he and his girlfriend got eaten by a grizzly bear. But, uh, and it's just absolutely fascinating because this, this guy spends a huge amount of time by himself. But, yeah, but you know, rather, I, I saw rather than, rather than getting in touch with nature the way you're describing, this guy basically is a, like a crazy person. Who just yeah. he thinks that like like Werner Herzog says you know what he says is totally right on he's like this guy basically imagines that bears are humans in bear suits like he just he anthropomorphizes yeah, that's, that's what everything I was thinking too. he anthropomorphizes everything he just imagines that everything that he's seeing from the salmon to the foxes to the to, that they're all just like oh the cute little human creatures that are all you know <laughs> in these yeah. like little furry suits right yeah it's a it's a fundamental mistake he's not respecting the wildlife for who they actually are yeah so you know and also i noticed like i saw a few clips of that he was extremely talkative 
So it shows that he's not really sinking into a mode where he's in, in, a, in, a, in a, a thought mode. He's more like in a conceptual mode all the time. So it seemed to me he was still in like camp mode as opposed to a, a proper uh, bush mode. Well, he's always filming himself. So he's always putting on a show for everybody to, you know, back in camp. Like he's yeah. always... You know, mm-hmm. Well, you know, oddly sure. enough, like if you're doing something wrong in the bush, you get something that's a vision. So like, you know, when most of the time, if you're in full bush mode, you're, you're going along and you're in this, uh, like a daydream that you're following. But if you're starting to make a mistake or there's something that you really, really, really ought to be doing, there's no way for any thoughts or words to appear in your brain. So instead, what you get is a vision. And sometimes the vision would enable you to correct what you're doing to, to come you know, more into accord with how you should be behaving in nature. Yeah, well, I, I know, I mean, I've only had a small taste of this, but I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm just absolutely fascinated by is I'm, I'm, I've always been really fascinated by, like, snakes, lizards, turtles, salamanders, frogs. And so I've always been, like, a freak for that yeah. stuff. And yeah, what, I've found, like what I've found is, uh, is that, uh, and I've talked to, you know, like, my former students or students who are, who are hunters up north, and they tell me it's exactly the same thing with with hunting that if you're really obsessed with a particular animal or plant and you're, you really want to find it or you really want to like, you know, kill it and eat it or, you know, whatever. If you're really obsessed with a particular plant or animal and you think about it a lot, you'll start to get these dreams and visions Mm -hmm. about that thing where you'll get insights so, like for instance, I there's this one park that I that I went to a lot. It's a huge nature park in the Montreal area, and I would go there with my sons. And I had heard that there were milk snakes, eastern milk snakes, that were oh, you nice. could find in this park, but uh, but nobody like I had heard that they had been there in the past, like but nobody could find them, and I wasn't able to find them, and then. You know, but I had I had walked around this this park numerous times with with my sons, and we had like explored there, and you know, found all sorts of cool stuff. So mm-hmm. clearly, you know, I'm not I'm not attributing some mysticism to this. I don't I don't really think it requires any kind of supernatural uh, input for this. But clearly, my sensory apparatus had been sort of uploading everything in that environment numerous times because I walked yeah. around there a lot. And one time I had a dream where I thought, oh, well, that's where they are. They're clearly in mm-hmm. that one spot where there's all those rocks and they're on that cliff and that's where they are. And so I woke up and I told my wife and I said, <laughs> I know where the milk snakes are. They're on that place, like right near the overpass and where the rocks are. They, they, they've got to be there. That, that's like the perfect. If I was a milk snake, that's where I would want to go. Like that's yeah. exactly where I want to go. And she said, "Yeah, you're crazy." So I went to the park and I found four of them, like that day Ooh, nice. in that exact spot. And I thought, this must be how we got to the top of the food chain, like this ability yeah. to sort of just process huge amounts of like data from our environment. When yeah, and when you're processing when, that much at once, like in, when you're in bush mode, that happens all the time. Like you're really aware of where every animal is. You can even tell like something's walking above you and you can tell it's an elk as opposed to a deer or a bear just by your your mind just knows because of the way it sounds when it's coming through the boxwood, like that kind of thing. Well, the so same, you're, you're yeah. Really that, I mean, the same, the same cousin that I told you who got stalked by the, the mountain lion, he and his wife are 
avid birders. Right? They're mm-hmm. really, really into bird. And I had this this experience, which I've talked about in numerous uh, epistemology classes at John Abbott College. But uh, they're both they're in their seventies. You know, they're yeah. so they're starting to experience probably some sort of decline a little bit in the acuity of their their senses and stuff like that. But they came here to Montreal for a, a family reunion thing. And I they said, oh, they're, they're really into birding and stuff like that. And they, they wanted to go to uh, to Mount Royal Park right here in the middle of Montreal. And so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, I, you know, I live right by Mount Royal Park. I go there all the time. Um, like I've gone there thousands and thousands of times. <laughs> like, and so mm-hmm. I, I took them um, for a walk on Mount Royal Park and it was just absolutely astounding walking with them. I saw all sorts of things through them that I had never seen before. And they're like, you know, older people. Like, and it's just because yeah. they've trained their senses to pay attention. They could just from a small little sound coming from a distance tell me exactly what kind of bird it was, whether it was a male or a female, how old it was, what kind of mood it was in. <laughs> like, yeah. they, they just immediately, they could pick up on all of this. And it's not because they had you know, extra super like, you know, daredevil ears or in fact, their ears mm. probably were, if you were to test them, my guess is my ears are probably like a little bit better than theirs. But mm. it's just that they're, you get in these situations with people who have turned on their senses and are paying attention and they yeah. just, they are picking up on so much more information than you. And so this park that yeah. I go to all the time, and I'm not like listening to music when I'm at the park. I'm really paying attention, but I'm not paying attention as well as them because they, yeah. they like, there was like seven different species that I didn't even know were there that they identified. And they could tell, they could identify the sound of a bird by the sound of its wing beats. and i mean i imagine if you're in bush mode you can do that with with everything yeah you have you have access to the whole it almost feels like you're like near the center of some kind of sphere of uh of all your sensory data all being processed at once and so you're you're hyper aware of all your environment it's very fun actually it's it's quite you know it's more powerful than any drug or psychedelic you could do when you get deeply into it it's just amazing experience do you think do you think Emerson Ralph Waldo Emerson was onto it in his uh, his essay uh, Nature where he talks about like you know there is this particular moment when I'm out in the woods where uh, all mean egotism disappears my mm-hmm. eye is gone and I am nothing but an all-seeing eye yeah, this, do you think he yeah, was do getting? That, yeah. Do you think he was getting to the sort of the same thing? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think he's in that bush mode. I think it's. I think it's possible for all humans. Like you know, a lot of people think that you know Aboriginal dream time or, or whatever. There might be a new word for Aboriginal in Australia. But when I was there exploring with them, they were using Aboriginal. They have the, the idea of dream time, and some people who study them are, are treating it like it's a religion, and it's not. A religion is a conceptual thing. And uh, what they're doing is actually like they're exploring the flip side of human nature, the other way to be human. 
So when they're in dream time, they're not in a relig- religious sense. They're exploring something that's very real. It's the other mentality and the, the other sort of personality of what a human can be. Huh. I wonder what my, my, my uncle, Calvin Luther Martin, he wrote, uh, he wrote a number of books on, on, on this stuff called the way of the human being. Um, and, uh, he's got a lot of books on this, but he, he's a historian who studied sort of, um, indigenous peoples of North America and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And his, his argument was that if you want to actually, if you want to understand how, how we sort of evolved and how we got to the top of the food chain, you have to understand that like what got us to the top of the food chain was primarily not so much our intellect, but our imagination. And so mm-hmm. he says, what made us really good hunters is not so much that we could outsmart everything, although that's that's maybe part of it. It's that we were really good at imagining what it would be like to be all the different things. Like and yeah. we could we could put ourselves imaginatively into the shoes of all the different animals. And, and then if you respect them enough, you imagine them also as being different than us. I mean, you can't be like that guy who thinks they're all like little humans or humans in suits, right? <laughs> you, have to, you have to respect uh, what it is you're learning. So, Yeah. yeah. And, but, he, but he says that, that what made us so good at, at sort of hunting everything and is that, and so he says, when you look at the cave paintings and the people, you know, imagining themselves as like, you know, half human, half animal creatures and things like that and, and hunting mm-hmm. these things that, part of the reason why they were so good at hunting everything is because they could imagine if I was this thing, this antelope or this elk, like I would, this is, this is where I would go. So of course that's where it is. Right. But when you were chasing these things in in Africa with nothing but like, you know, arrows and, you know, like very small weapons. Spears spears and nets. The the arrow hunters are actually a different tribe. Okay. My friend Peter was, he, Spent some time with them as well. But the thing is, they eat uh, chimpanzees, and I didn't want to get into that. So like, he, he even, like even Peter was a little bit put off by it, because it almost looked like it was some like hairy Italian guy's arm they were pulling out of the <laughs> fire, right? So like, I, I didn't want to... Like, for instance, I don't, like, when, I'm in, when I'm in the depths of Congo, and like, you're, you're in one of the bars by one of these dirt, lo- dirt logging roads, sometimes a guy will come in with a wheelbarrow full of smoked monkeys. And I don't even like that as a beer snack. Like I'm not into. <laughs> I don't want to eat monkeys or apes. It's too. It's too cool. They look like little humans. Like it's just. Uh, it's not for me. It really. <laughs> it really looks that that much like human, eh? Yeah, it's like because it, it even looks more so when they smoke them because their fur falls off, so you can really see the face. Oh, and like with God. the with the um, the orangutan arm, like you can imagine the fur burns off. Mm-hmm. It looks exactly like a human arm. Like um, I can't do that. So you know, I went in for the um, the net and spear hunters and these ones they consider the chimpanzee to be like their grandfather they won't eat it like we even caught one at one point and they let it go wow yeah but yeah. they have extraordinary hunting ability like like they notice so i'd be going along with these bambooty and some of their best hunters would sometimes notice and i saw this on maybe half a dozen occasions somehow they spotted a sleeping dick dick which is like about the size of a hare but it's an antelope and they would go and surround it and set their nets so there were nets all the way around it and then they'd like startle it and they would try to run and there's no way out and it'd be in the net and they would catch it. Wow. Yeah, so that's, that's... the powers of observation are just incredible. <laughs> hey, <laughs> what have you, I mean, I'm going to run a theory by you. So um, there's this, this theory that I'm, that I'm kind of attracted to, which is uh, 
it's from a number of different sources, but one of them is the Sacred Executioner, which is talks about the when humans used to be practice like human sacrifice and the transition from practicing child sacrifice to not, which you can oh, see okay. uh, represented mythologically in the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, so yeah, uh, that was popular in, with the North Africans, I think. You know, all over the place. It was like if if you live in a patriarchal society where the the way that your line continues is with your eldest son. By far, the the greatest sacrifice you can make is your firstborn son, because that that's like saying, "I trust my sky god enough that I believe I'm going to get another son." If you don't get another son, yeah. your entire line is dead, right? Like, so yeah. it's a very very big leap of faith to sacrifice, and they would do it, right? So, but um, but one of the arguments for why pork was was banned by a lot of these these uh, these peoples is that apparently pork smells almost it's almost identical to human right in terms mm-hmm. of the way it smells when it's being cooked and so yeah. in the same way that uh when my my wife was growing up in New Jersey they had there's a lot of people who would go and raid ravens nests and they would raise yeah. the ravens as pets and yeah. so they banned this but then what people would do is when they got caught, they would say, oh, I thought it was a crow. And that would get them off. And so oh, even okay. though crows were not in any way endangered, New Jersey banned keeping crows and ravens as pets just so that yeah. people wouldn't have the loophole. And so the argument yeah. is that basically pork was banned as a way of closing the loophole of people saying, oh, I thought it was pork. and <laughs> It's actually human. Um, That's so, interesting. I, I have like two two things to say about that. Uh, one of them is that um, Marvin Harris wrote some pretty good books on that, but he's kind of like not read as much anymore. But he used to be a very prominent anthropologist from the seventies. But he had his cows, pigs, boars, and witches, and also cannibals and kings. You might want to look into that. Okay. He has a theory that's compatible with that one, but uh, you know has some other things to say about <laughs> it, that it's ecologically unsuited for what the um, Middle East became, and then had to be had to be banned wholesale for for ecological reasons but also i think you're right about pork tasting like human because i had a friend uh, american friend and she accidentally ate a lot of human really she where she couldn't tell the difference well she was in uh quito so in, in ecuador okay and she was just wait i think she'd just come back from a galapagos trip or maybe she was waiting for one but there nearby like among the various backpacker restaurants there was one that would seem to be cheaper than the others so she was going in there all the time and I guess there's this particular pork cutlet or something you could get with it or pork and potatoes. And she was eating that all the time. And then just when she left keto, she saw it was a big um, newspaper article saying that the owner of that restaurant had just been arrested for chopping up humans and selling them in the restaurant. Whoa, no way. <laughs> yeah. So Whoa. she so she like uh, Facebooked me and said, you know, well, first it was a weird question. She said, do you think it's it's bad if you eat a lot of human? <laughs> And I was like, I'm not sure what you mean by that. <laughs> but eventually she explained and I told her, like, I don't think, you know, it'll kill you or whatever. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's just meat. You know, it's probably not a good idea, but uh, don't worry about it too much. <laughs> there's, have you ever, uh, there's a, a wonderful, I, you know, when I was at, at my late teens and early 20s, I got for a little while, like, just obsessed. Me and my, a couple of my friends were really obsessed with these riddles. You know, where like you say a, a particular thing and then you, 
you have a certain number of questions that you can ask, like to, in order to solve the riddle. But I remember this one, which was you know very everybody loved this one, and it was there's a bunch of um, there's a bunch of soldiers during World War II that end up getting kind of shipwrecked on this island in the South Pacific, and they they run out of food and. So they end up having to resort to cannibalism to a bunch of the dead bodies and stuff like yeah. that. But they have this one guy who lost his eyes during the like you know the battle and stuff like that. And so they decide, you know, there's no reason why he needs to he needs to deal with this, you know, because he can't see. Yeah. So they just cook the stuff and they tell him that it's shark. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And they tell him he's shark. And so years later, they're getting together. And they're getting together for like a, a reunion and they end up um and so the, the blind guy he orders shark and uh, at the restaurant and the yeah. shark arrives and he bites into it and um you know, I guess on some level he's always suspected it wasn't true. And so he eats yeah. the shark and then he goes outside and kills himself. And so the mm-hmm. the question is is like why? And so you have yeah, to sort so of add, the whole story. You yeah. have to like ask through questions to get to like why would eating shark suddenly lead him to like go and yeah, kill himself? That'd be a hard so, one to figure out. Be, but you know, they did have a lot of cannibalism on those South Pacific islands. So I, I've been to like you know, all quite a lot of them. I mean, maybe I'm missing a few that aren't that are um, you know, of course some of them have thousands of islands. You can't go, you know, at all of them. But I've been all the major ones and all the ones that have interesting stuff on them. And Quite often, I meet people who are proud that their ancestors were cannibals. Wow. So they'd be saying, you know, like they would be saying, like, like in Fiji one time, they were talking about taking a mural away from a museum that showed, you know, cannibals being active and eating people. And I met some Fijians who were saying, no, you know, our ancestors were cannibals. We should be proud of it. I mean, we're not doing it now, but why should we be ashamed? And some of them are quite gluttonous cannibals. Like they would try to eat as many humans as possible because you're, somehow you're gaining their power the more than you eat. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm wondering... Yeah, but I think maybe we were all cannibals back in the day because they, they find evidence like even for Europeans and for like South Americans, North Americans, they found the evidence of cannibalism everywhere. Well, most so could oppor- have been people most around. opportunistic omnivores, which is what we are, like if you look at any kind of ecosystem, we're not specialists, right? We're opportunistic yeah, omnivores. And opportunistic omnivores, whether it be raccoons, bears, uh, Humboldt, squid, uh, all animals that occupy that niche uh basically will eat almost anything in the environment that's edible including each other yeah right they they don't uh you know like bears will eat each other raccoons will eat each Mm -hmm. other squid will eat each other like we probably um did eat each other at you know at some point but but isn't there like i remember reading that one of the rarest diseases in the world is found in New Guinea, and it's among people who oh yeah, uh, like kudu or something like that. It's like kudu is that is that prion disease? I think I it's called kudu or kudu. Yeah, or maybe like I don't know. It's the one where you get it from eating human brains. Oh yeah, that's the one. So it is a prion. It's it's associated with um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. It's almost like the same pro, um, prion. It's like a misfolded protein that induces other proteins to misfold, kind of like ice nine. <laughs> yeah, in that novel. I don't really know yeah, so hardly anything. The, about the this. 4A people were especially prone to it because they used to devour the brains of their ancestors as a sign of respect. 
of their ancestors. But then they lost quite a few. Yeah, but oddly enough, someone who was doing gene studies on the foray, they found that some of them are immune to prion diseases. So I guess already they'd begun to evolve to be immune to the, the main problem that can come from that. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we live, we're, we're supposed to push to like 9 billion people in the in coming. And I mean, you're talking about these two different ways of being human. So how mm-hmm. is somebody who lives, I mean, most of our listeners, not all, I mean, some of them live in rural areas, uh, but most of our listeners live in urban areas, like most human beings on planet Earth right now. So yeah. how do you access this other way of being human if you're increasingly living in a place like Montreal or Tokyo or New York? Or- well, I think the Asians had to deal with this first. Because if you look at their spirituality, it was very much based upon meditation in the wilderness at first. And you can see a lot of the insights you know, coming through Buddhism were, were based upon that. And I think they had the problem then of people living in uh, dense urban areas. So you can look at what the, like maybe Zen is the uh, the channel that kept closest to the origin for that. And I think what they did is they would make temples. So even though they're constructed of thought and you're aware of thoughts around you, when you're in this temple, it's maybe designed in such a way as to help you in as short a time as possible, get into a state that approximates as best you can what you would be in if you're in bush mode. So you don't think you find that in like Shaft Cathedral or in like a, a big kind of Christian cathedral? I think, yeah, I think that those those are probably a bit of that as well. You know, if you have access to a cathedral, <laughs> I was thinking more than the, the uh, North American might find it easier to get involved in Zen as opposed to cathedrals where they have to fly quite a distance to get there and might be full up with tourists. <laughs> but I think that, yeah, but I think the same, the idea was similar for these cathedrals as well, because they're they actually meant to be a grove in the forest, right? Yeah. So all all those pillars and it's like almost like trees above. It's got like that fractal ribbing to to keep the roof up. Yeah, I went to this. I remember, uh, you know, the same trip where we saw that you know bear cub and the mother and stuff like that with my friend Steve. I remember we went to this this church. It was in the Muskoka Lakes region, and you would everybody would take their canoe or their their kayak or their boat to get to this church. And the church would meet, you know, Sunday morning, and it was outdoors. And it was in this, oh, wow. like, natural kind of formation where it's, it's you're on water, but it's behind you is this kind of cliff, this rock face. And it's, it kind of is like a, like a little, like, inlet. And just mm-hmm. the way it's set up is a natural amphitheater. So one person talking mm-hmm. at the right place, their voice is magnified. But you're just surrounded by all this emerald green and these beautiful trees and water. It was so calming to the brain as well. Those are exactly the colors in the environment that uh, calms your brain. Yeah, and it was just, it was such a weird, kind of amazing experience because it's sort of, you're you're going through the emotions of this this kind of religion that, you know, for me at least I was familiar with, but in this natural environment where (laughs) you just like, you're like, oh wow! I guess I guess this is how, probably you know whatever we think of as being religion, it probably was something like this for most of our history. Yeah, that's probably the probably the roots of it. It was grew out of that kind of spirituality and connection to nature. But then once it's grown and become conceptual, well, then it's something that's um, at least a little bit subject to the uh, laws of survival of the fittest. So I think it can evolve, and, and often it becomes a little bit more self-serving or even a bit more cruel, but at the same time, more powerful. 
Do you think so, there's so any substitute, like in terms of uh, hallucinogenics and things like that, do you think there's any substitute to just going off and being in the woods by yourself for, for you know, I th- 40 no, days I and 40 I think you probably nights? have to do it. I mean, I mean I've tried a lot of, lot of things. Uh, I haven't tried ayahuasca because I, I was with this Mexican guy who um, we were floating down the Amazon together, and I was surprised to learn that he didn't want to do it. So I ended up not doing it. But some of my friends have done quite a lot of it. And it seems like it's a different thing. And some of my, like one of my friends is a, a Cree and he spent a lot of time in the woods and he's done it and he didn't draw any parallels between the two. And that's maybe the closest. So no, maybe I haven't tried, the I haven't tried it either. I haven't tried it either. It just seems like, I mean, I'm, I'm theoretically open to the idea. It just, it seems really intense. You know, like you're kind of yeah. playing with your, with your brain, I I don't know if I would get it back. Yeah. You know, like it just. Seems... Well, one of my friends was going to try that one. You know, when you uh, burn the flesh of your chest so that it's red, and then you grab this colorful tree frog and you smear it onto your chest. No. And then it's supposed to give you these uh, superpowers. So you can sit your super hearing, super uh, vision, super jumping ability, everything. So you're almost like a Marvel character, and then you can jump around and hunt monkeys in the middle of the night or whatever it is you want to do. <laughs> And, I've never heard of and, this at all. Okay, well, he was he wanted to test it, right? So he was going to go there, and he was going to try to go around the night and hunt monkeys <laughs> and see how successful he was. Then he was going to do all that and then see if there was an improvement. So someone would have to be timing him or, or seeing, you know, what, what <laughs> get some metrics on that, <laughs> science the shit out of it. Well, I mean, I, I, tried, I tried the one time, this, well, a couple times, one time in particular where I remember I was in this – uh, I was out in the woods with um, with my wife and with a bunch of our friends, and we were like, we were on like these really amazing mushrooms, really strong mushrooms. And I remember that, like being in that space, suddenly I just it was like it was something like out of like a Marvel like superhero. It was like a movie where I just remember everything slowed down so so much it was all kind of in slow-mo and i i could see things so vividly and so precisely and i remember there was a duck that kind of jumped up out of the water and was flying towards us and past us and i could literally see it like in a movie where it's like (laughs) (laughs) and it's like passing by me and i can see like it's movements so precisely, almost as if like it was no longer a fluid motion. It was in like like sort of a series of of images, like and it was wow. and everything around was very very. And I th- I remember thinking like this, you know, I'm not actually I'm not seeing anything that's not there. I'm just seeing yeah. what's there, and I'm just paying a lot more attention to it. You know? Yeah, so it, you know, with all your extra attention, now you would be exhausted if you tried to do that all the time. But paying so much more attention, yeah, it would seem like time is slowing. Yeah, because the, the whole idea of time in the brain is quite subjective, anyway. So what? I mean, do you think, you know, if you were king, <laughs> would you basically mm-hmm. just say that all all people, or at least like maybe all kind of adolescents, need to, as part of their development? go off and spend a bunch of time by themselves in order to to access this this other way of being human? Uh, 
it might be advisable, especially if they have a culture that promotes it anyway. Like some of the large tribes in the very southern part of Africa do this. I've talked to a few guys who've gone through it. But generally, they, they make sure that the uh, young person doesn't screw up too badly by having some teachers come intermittently to them and make sure they're okay. And then try to teach them some of the tribal lore. And then have like another little bit of completely alone and then once again with teaching. Huh. So it might be worthwhile, but it's hard to say we're entering into such a weird period now with the way civilization is developing that it's hard to know if we need the old ways as much. I mean, we might uh, desperately miss them at one point, but uh, we're definitely doing some very odd things as humans. And we're taking ourselves quite far out of our ancestral sphere of competence. Because it just seems like with a lot of my, you know, with a fair number of my students, it's that they are so completely plugged into what you would call camp mode in a in a way that mm. is almost i don't know almost unthinkable because it's as if you know most people let's say in camp mode you at least have times where you were maybe in bed or you're in the bathroom yeah. or you were there would be times where you were kind of not with other people but now you yeah. know if everybody's got like their smartphone with them all the time you can take other people into the can with you, right? Like you can mm-hmm. people. You can be like checking your phone while you're in bed. Like you can be, um, let's say you have a long commute. You can be sort of listening to people and interacting with people while you're walking or or jogging or in the car or yeah. on the bus. Like you can be plugged into camp mode all the time. Like you can be in a situation yeah, where it's almost you're, like a missile sending back telemetry. Yeah, like you can just be never yeah, ever so. alone. Like even you know I you know I I've seen I've seen old people. Well, I have one I have one story on that subject. Oh and shoot, this has shoot, to do with shoot. That. You're familiar with Petra, right? Like in you've probably uh, been to Petra. I've never been to Petra, Petra in, in Jordan. Oh, Petra in Jordan. Yeah. I don't yeah, anyway, you, you know, like you maybe remember from like what was it, Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. or something <laughs> like that, or one of them. Yeah. I forget Holy Grail. No, so maybe you, it was Holy you've Grail. You've actually been anyway, there. Had Petra in it. Yeah, I've been there. I went there four or five times. Sometimes I go there and spend a few weeks. <laughs> My God, it's quite a fun place. But I, but I remembered when I first went there that I'd gone to see some murals that had survived somehow, and it was showing like some grapes and people drinking wine, and there was indication of musical instruments. And I thought, oh, okay. And then, then a guide who was uh, with us in the in the uh, passageway was explaining how the the people who used to live there had this rule where you'd have eight glasses of wine at maximum, and then you'd play your instruments, and then everyone would chat. And they had, you know. And I thought, oh, okay, what an interesting way of socializing. Because when I was back at the hostel, people had guitars and they were playing instruments, and they were drinking wine and they were socializing. And I thought, wow, the the way the humans behave and their their culture for um, enjoying themselves has not changed in thousands of years. But then the next time I came back to Petra, I was in the same hostel, and I saw everyone just had out their smartphone, and they were all glued to it. No one had a guitar. There was no instruments. No one was talking to anyone else, and they were all just on their smartphones. And I thought, wow, what a change. So you had like several thousand-year history of, of people socializing, playing instruments, drinking wine, chatting, and boom, gone in a couple of years. Wow. That's just, that's just absolutely wild. I mean, yeah. they're, they're I, still I'm, interacting with people, but they're not interacting with people that are in front of them. Yeah. Which and is the different. wine drinking was gone and the playing instruments is gone as well. I mean, maybe they would be playing music to themselves, you know, over the smartphone. But it's, you know, definitely to my eyes, it was a change. 
And I wonder what will happen with that. I mean, we might come to some accommodation with it, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, so the uh, Johan Hari in his book, uh, Lost Connections, he he makes, you know, and he ba- this is based on a lot of research on this, that gener- gen- Generation Z, so it's the yeah. people that were um, alive when the smartphone came out, were a certain age when the smartphone came out. Um, they are, uh, the Generation Z, they have the highest rates of anxiety and depression on record, but also a number of other things is, that are interesting is that they tend to, like, they have sex later than anybody else on record, going back to the 1920s. Um, and yeah. when they do start having sex, they have less of it. Uh, and they also drink less. So they, huh. they basically, they have less um, actual human contact, like a lot yeah. less. And they tend to be, they take a lot more antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, things like that. So I don't know, maybe there's something going on with that. I I don't, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe they'll... Well, certainly change the travel experience because it used to be, like sometimes I'd have like a four-month period or a five-month period. And this is even pre-email. That maybe my only contact would be once I paid twenty dollars to go to some old phone and try to make a phone call back to my parents for Christmas or something. Maybe like a five minute conversation. Then a couple more <laughs> months would pass, and I would, might have passed through several countries. There was no contact. And I even had once, like going through the Rhode and Zodi Mountains, I managed to send. I managed to couldn't get into email. I couldn't get into Facebook, but I managed to like make a post on the page of the Facebook. Because sometimes it took took hours of effort to try to access anything for the internet in in Africa a while ago. And I remember posting something that was quite unfortunate because I said, I'm going to try to get through the Rhode and Zodi Mountains. And everyone said that uh, no foreigner can get through there because of the genocidal Hutu rebels and they'll probably kill you. So I posted that. And then it turned out that it was um, several weeks or maybe even a month before I could make another post. <laughs> so, oh, no. Yeah. So everyone had seen like an apparent disappearance. <laughs> yeah. Did they report it and everything and think this is the end of the world? Well, I, I guess there were, you know, because I'd had a few longer stretches before. This was the longest one and the most unfortunate thing I posted. But, uh, yeah, it probably was a bit stressful for them. <laughs> All right. Well, I yeah. guess that's a, a good kind of macabre place to, to end. So maybe just tell our listeners again about your, your book. I, I, I highly recommend it. I, I got it a couple of days ago, the Kindle version. I'm about like half the way through it. It's absolutely mm-hmm fascinating it's um i mean well anyway people people can check it out and but it's one of those books where you know if i didn't know you enough to trust you i would like there's you just can't believe this is true like it's just such (laughs) completely wild wild stories like and one after another and after another like that too yeah, I have all these crazy friends, and we're all like, uh, all of them go off and do the same sort of thing. I've just been doing it longer and maybe slightly more crazy. I mean, but there's but, so much adventure you can have out on the world if you just just go do it. It's not nearly as dangerous as people say it is, as long as you pay attention. <laughs> yeah, but it's the the world's most traveled man. The world's mm-hmm. most traveled man. I I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's fantastic. It's like it actually. I think what it. Uh, I want I want my sons to read it, and I want to because it just I think it's a reminder that we have this idea that somehow um, all the adventure to be had has been done, and it's it's all been done. It's kind of and you realize like there's just this very very fascinating complicated world that's still out there now. It's not like you 
you don't have to go back to the 19th century and read about some explorers that it's actually happening now, right? There's it's mm-hmm. out there now, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, I would, great. uh, I, I, at some point I would love to have you on again, um, to talk more specifically about your book, because, uh, when I'm done with the book, I, I, I suspect I'm going to have, you know, two hours of questions for you after the book. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but, uh, but yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure I'll okay. see you in social media land soon. Okay. All okay, right. Bye-bye, John. It's been Take fun. Take care. <laughs> Bye.